Amen, indeed. Amen, indeed. To him belongs all praise and glory and honor forever and ever. If you have a Bible, please open with me to the book of Nahum. One more time in the book of Nahum, chapter 3. We'll look today at verses 8 through 19. The title of the sermon is The Incurable Wound of Sin. And really, as we look at this text today, it's kind of the ultimate so what to, to all of this prophecy of Nahum. We're going to see kind of the, the ultimate show of the wound of sin, the disease of sin in these people. And, and as we do that, of course, these are pagan people. And, and so we're going to flip it around a little bit as we work through the text and, and kind of see lessons from the incurable wound of sin. But that was too long of a title. So the incurable wound of sin, Nahum chapter 3, verses 8 through 19. The Lord will show his response to those who choose to remain in their sin. And, and as we think about the incurable wound of sin, dear friend, I hope your mind will ever be brought back to the Lord Jesus Christ because it's through Christ and Christ alone that that horrible, eternally condemning disease can be cured. Nahum chapter 3, please stand with me, if you will, as we read God's word. Nahum 3, verse 8 through verse 19, the end of this prophecy of the Lord. It says, Are you no better than Noamon, which was situated by the waters of the Nile, with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea? Ethiopia was her might, and Egypt, too, without limits. Put and Lubam were her helpers, and yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Also, her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street. They cast a lot for her honorable men, and all of her great men were bound with fetters. You too will become drunk. You will be hidden. You will search for a refuge from the enemy. All your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Behold, your people are women in your midst. The gates of your land are open wide to your enemies. Fire consumes your gate bars. Draw for yourself water for the siege. Strengthen your fortifications. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There, fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down, and it will consume you as the locust does. Multiply yourself like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. You have increased your traders more than the stars of heaven. The creeping locust strips and flies away. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locust. Your marshals are like hordes of grasshoppers. Settling on, in the stone walls on a cold day, the sun rises and they flee. And the place where they are is not known. Your shepherds are sleeping, O king of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and there is no one to regather them. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you, for on whom has not your evil passed continually? This is the Lord's word. It's given for our sanctification. May he bless its reading and write it upon our hearts. You may be seated. Now would you join with me and let's ask the Lord's blessing. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our great God, you are in the heavens exalted as the King of kings and Lord of lords. You're the creator and the sustainer of all things. It's by the word of your power that all things hold together. Lord, you created the world for your glory, to display your power and your might. You created man to reflect your image and yet fallen into sin that image is marred, but in the infinite wisdom of the eternal God, you've made a way for salvation. And this plan of salvation displays your mercy, your kindness, 
your forbearance, your grace. It also displays your wrath, your indignation towards sin, your righteousness, your compassion upon those whom you love. Ultimately, Lord, salvation displays your glory. Lord, as we come to your word, we desperately need your help. We desperately need your spirit to move in and among us, to help our minds to understand and comprehend, to help our hearts to be softened and humble. Lord, to help us evaluate our lives and repent of sin be sanctified by the truth. Lord, all of that is a work of your Holy Spirit through the proclamation of your word. So we submit ourselves to your grace and to your work. We ask, Lord, that you would that you would just help us in this time. Lord, help us to put away distractions from the week ahead or the week behind. Help us to focus our hearts and our minds upon the glorious truth of your word. Lord, lift our gaze from the present darkness of this world and allow us to behold the glorious Savior. Lord, as we run our race, we know that we must fix our eyes on Christ. We run, we labor, we strive and we pursue your upward call in Christ that we may be conformed to his image, made more like him on this earth as we long to one day lay aside sin and with unveiled face behold the beauty and the perfection of your glory. Lord, help us to understand how seriously you take sin. That it truly is a cosmic offense. For those in Christ, it is cosmic treason against the one who has laid down his life for us. Lord, help us to consider the cost of our sin. Help us to understand the danger of facing death without having true, genuine, life-giving faith in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would show us all Christ through your word. Lord, as we sit under your authority, as we sit under your truth, I ask that you would sanctify us. Wean us off the cares of the world. Give us eyes and hearts that look toward and are fixed upon the glories that are to come in eternity. As we hope in Christ, Lord, I pray that we would purify ourselves just as he is pure. Pray all of this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So as we conclude the book of Nahum, the prophecy of Nahum to the people of Nineveh on the authority through the inspiration of the Lord, one summary that we can come to is that when the Lord turns against the people, it is an all-out war. The Lord is not squeamish. He is not joking. He does not, <clears throat> he does not take sin lightly. He does not deal lightly with sin. Rather, when the Lord is prepared to judge a people, he judges them fully. And in the same way, when the Lord is prepared to judge a soul, he judges that soul fully, completely, eternally. When you face the judgment seat of Christ at the end of your life, there's but two answers. There's but two paths. Either you are covered in the righteousness, you are covered in the blood of Christ, forgiven of your sin, counted righteous 
because he himself was righteous, or you stand before him as one who is covered with and infested by the incurable wound and disease of sin. It is a righteous wrath, as we heard this morning, that the Lord pours out upon sinners. The Lord is not acting as a cruel dictator or some kind of evil tyrant, but in his perfect righteousness, he stands for true justice. We have to understand that we will face that judgment one day. We come to the end and we stand either in Christ or we stand in our sin. The Lord is promising in the text to lay a nation low. Nineveh was a city. The Assyrians were an empire. And the fall of Nineveh marked the the falling, the beginning of the fall of the Assyrian empire. And the Lord is going to lay them low by the hands of pagan people. You remember it was an army of the Babylonians and the Scythians and the Medes that would come and bring down the city of Nineveh. But make no mistake. It was not these pagan people and their power and their strength that was acting. It was God as the sovereign king, as the ruler of all things who raised up an army to defeat a people to bring about his eternal purposes. It's the Lord judging a sinful nation. And as we think about this judgment, as we think about the wound and the disease of this sin, dear friends, may we lift our eyes to Christ. May may we not just look at Nineveh as an evil, wicked people and, and only consider the judgment that they deserve. But remember that apart from Christ, your wound was incurable. Your disease was terminal. Without Christ, you face eternity in hell. Christ, in many ways, is a warrior king. This is a a battle and a war type of prophecy. And we know that Christ is the ultimate warrior king. Think about the picture in Revelation 19. He rides in on his white horse, and in righteousness, he judges and wages war and carries out the wrath of the Father. Dear friend, recall that Jesus is not only a warrior king, he is also the great physician. Mark chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus said, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but to call sinners. He is a warrior king. But he comes to call sinners, to heal those who are sick, to heal those who are overwhelmed with the disease of sin. And all are overwhelmed with the disease of sin. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus came to call sinners to himself. Dear friend, let me just just exhort you that we ought to take on that dual role and dual purpose of Christ, that we are warriors and contenders for truth and righteousness. But we make war for the truth. We contend for truth and righteousness while also trying to draw people to the great physician so that the, the death that will come from the sin can be healed. If you only stand and contend, you're missing the purpose. We are to call sinners to Christ that they might have new life in him forevermore. So as we think about these verses, I offer this kind of as a, as a summary purpose, a, a summary of the Lord really to us, and that is that we must come to Christ for life and hope and for victory over sin, we must come to him to be purged of all of the disease of sin. So as, we, as we end this prophecy, you see this great climax that it's because of the incurable wound of sin that Nineveh is being judged. For if there were righteous people remaining, 
There are times in Scripture that the Lord will relent, that he will be patient, and that he will draw a people back to himself. He did it with Nineveh in the days of Jonah. He was ready to judge. He called the people to repentance. There was a national repentance, and the Lord was patient. Now they've turned back into their sin. And so there's four scenes in this text that I kind of want to lay out. And as we work through each of the scenes, there's kind of one primary sin, I think, that we can kind of see and draw out and, and say to learn from, learn from these pagans, this is what we must avoid. Because we're not pagans. So, so it's hard to draw example from a pagan people, but we can see what their sin does, and we can see what we must Avoid. So we'll see this comparison of the city of Thebes and the city of Nineveh. Ultimately, we see that there's great pride in the people of Nineveh. We're going to see Nineveh readying for war, and the Lord effectively ridicules their readiness. We see the sin of self-reliance. We see then that their shepherds are sleeping, their leaders have fled, their leaders have died, and we see selfish slothful, sinful leadership that caused and led to the downfall of these people. Then we see ultimately kind of the climactic summary point of this. We see the deadly disease of sin. And we see that that showed itself most clearly in their evil towards other people. So let's see the cities compared. The cities compared verses 8 through 11. It says, are you no better than no Ammon, which was situated by the waters of the Nile, with water surrounding her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall consisted of the sea? Ethiopia was her might, and Egypt too, without limits. Put and Lubum were her helpers. The Lord begins by recounting the fall of this city, no Ammon. This is the, the city of Thebes, which was a city in the land of, of ancient Egypt. MacArthur wrote this about the city. He said, this was the great capital of southern Egypt and one of the most magnificent of all ancient civilizations. It was known and renowned for its 100 gates. It had a temple measuring 330 feet long by 170 feet wide. That's larger than the size of a football field. And it was known for its network of canals that worked its way through the city. It was a magnificent, a mighty a powerful city, and what's interesting to note is who brought down this city? Who were the attackers of the city that overcame it? It was the Assyrians. Nineveh was like the capital city of Assyria, of of the Assyrian Empire, and it was in 663 B.C. that the Assyrians launched an attack on the city of Thebes and and overcame it. This was an unbreakable city, many thought, in this day. And and so the Lord is reminding the Ninevites of their victory. He's reminding them that great cities can fall. And and this is a close window here because Nineveh fell in 612 B.C. So if you just do a little quick math there, there's about 50 to 51 years between the fall of, of Thebes and the fall of Nineveh. And so that great victory had to be fresh on the Ninevites' minds. The Lord tells of the greatness of this city. It says it was situated by the waters of the Nile. Water surrounded her. Her rampart was the sea. Her her walls consisted of the sea. Ethiopia was her might. Egypt, too, without limits. And Put and Lubum were among her helpers. Now, now in this day, if, if a city was surrounded by the sea, it was considered almost to be impenetrable. You could not get into the city to wage an attack. And and so this city was built to be great and majestic in part because it was nearly impossible to attack and to lay siege on a city that was surrounded by the water. It says that that Egypt was around her without limits. It was effectively an infinite city, a, a large area with great defenses. It would have been seen as glorious and wonderful in those days. But then look at verse 10. Yet, with all that glory, all that majesty, all that strength, 
Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her small children were dashed to pieces at the head of every street, and they cast lots for her honorable men, and all of her great men were bound with fetters. It was a great city in the eyes of men. It was majestically strong with the view uh, of a temporal, sinful nature. But when the Lord decided to act, he was able to bring it down swiftly and easily with, with no struggle. Is your goal, is your view of greatness something that's temporal? Or do you pursue an eternal treasure? What does your life show to others? You may say, yes, I, I pursue a, a, an eternal treasure but what do those closest to you see? Are your eyes fixed on the glorious prize of eternity? Or are you consumed with the cares of this world? The city of Thebes had a fleeting greatness. It was just that. It was fleeting. It was temporal. It did not last. Dear friend, nothing in this world lasts. No treasures that you amass on this earth are going to go with you to eternity. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust can destroy. Thebes surely was like Nineveh. They thought that they were an unbeatable, an unbreakable city until the Lord and his wrath broke out against them and crushed them and brought them down. Then look at verse 11. Because the Lord is reminding Nineveh of this victory that they had just won. As the Assyrian Empire. And then he says, but you too will become drunk. You will be hidden. You too will search for refuge from the enemy. It's a reminder of victory that's turned into a prophecy of defeat. This thing in which the people gloried in, the Lord would then tell them, this will be the exact same as your downfall. This idea that you too will be drunk, uh, uh, preachers and commentators think that it probably is a reference to being drunk with and filled with the Lord's wrath. That, that these people are about to drink the cup of God's wrath. They'll be overflowed by it. The Lord saying, you too, Nineveh, will be undone. Your fortifications will fall. That which you consider to be your great strength will be utterly undone. You will flee, and you will hide, and you will seek refuge. But there is no refuge to be found. Dear friend, let me stress that to you today. When the Lord executes judgment in a temporal sense here, but it applies to the eternal sense as well. When the Lord executes judgment, there is no hiding from the, from the pouring out of his wrath unless you are in Christ. Unless you find yourself covered by the great shelter of Christ, you too will face the Lord's wrath. So what should we think about the comparison of this city? I told you that, that I think the sin that you see here is pride. The Lord is reminding Nineveh and showing how Nineveh can be so easily drawn back to think about their great victory. And they're so welled up with pride. And so what is the answer to that is that we must pursue a genuine and true humility. We see this reminder of God's awesome and sovereign power. And we ought to remember the nothingness of our strength before him. You will not stand against the tide of God's wrath in the day of judgment if you stand in your own merit. The plans and the strength of men fail against the hand of Almighty God. Do you understand that you will face the creator of the heavens and the earth one day? And you can stand in your own strength. You can stand in your own merit. You can try to lay all of your good works before him and you will be utterly cast into hell for all eternity if that is your hope. 
humble yourselves under the almighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. You will be exalted if you're in Christ. You will be a, a sharer in and a partaker of his glory if you come to him in faith and repentance in this life. So is your planning and is your strength, is it like Nineveh? And it's in what, what you can do and, and what you can accomplish and the ways in which you can protect yourself? Or do you plan your life in accordance with God's will? Do you strive after your own purposes? Or do you strive to honor and glorify the Lord? Recall, dear friend, the Lord works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose for our good and for his eternal glory. And we must submit to him. We submit to him in humility because he is God and we are not. So the city's compared and then we see the readiness of Nineveh ridiculed, the readiness ridiculed in verses 12 through 15. And again, what we see here, I think, is the sin of self-reliance. They, they, they act as though they can prepare themselves enough to stand against the tide of God's judgment. It says, all your fortifications are fig trees with ripe fruit. When shaken, they fall into the eater's mouth. Behold, your people, or maybe your troops, are women in your midst. The gates of your land are Open wide to your enemies, fire consumes your gate bars. Draw for yourself water for the siege. Strengthen your fortifications. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. You see, the Lord is ridiculing them. He's calling them to make all of their preparations. But then, verse 15, he says, There the fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down, and it will consume you as the locust does. He says, your fortifications are like a fig tree. The, fr the fruit is ripe on the branches, and it's ready to fall off and be eaten and taken by your attackers, by the aggressors. The, these fortifications would have been the city's glory in this day. It's what everyone would have looked to as they considered the city of Nineveh. They would have seen the great strong fortifications and they would have seen this as a glorious city the people in the city would have considered these strengths as their hope and their security they're in this this city protected by the walls protected by by everything surrounding it that's what makes them secure and the lord says these fortifications are ready to fall they're like a ripe fruit that will fall off and fall into the eater's mouth the only fortress that can ever stand against the, the power and the outworking of God's wrath, the only fortress that stands is the fortress of Christ. There was a, a king, a, a ruler of Judah in this day named Hezekiah. So you have Hezekiah for, for Judah. You have Sennacherib as the king of Assyria. And Sennacherib was coming to make war on Judah to try to overtake the people of God. And Hezekiah responded in 2 Chronicles 32, verse 8. He said, with him, with the king of Assyria, is only an arm of flesh. But, Hezekiah said, with us, the Lord our God is our help and he will fight our battles. With the king of Assyria is only the arm of the flesh, but with us is the Lord of hosts. He will fight our battles. Nineveh fought in its own strength. It says your people, verse 13, your people or, or your troops, I think is the ESV translation, and maybe a little more accurate. Your troops are women in your midst. Your, your city gates are open wide to your enemies. You fought in your own strength. And what you see is that you will utterly, utterly fail. To fight in your own strength yields destruction. But we are called to stand firm in the strength of his might. With the power of his spirit working in us, we put on the armor of God so that we can stand firm against 
the war of sin in our day. So are you going to be like the Assyrians who battle with the arm of the flesh? Or are you going to be a follower of Christ and let the Lord your God be your help and fight your battles? Let the Lord your God fight your battles means you stand upon the truth. You know it. It takes root in your heart. It changes and transforms your life. And when you are faced with temptation, your response is Scripture. When you're faced with the evils of the world, your response is to stand upon the truth. When you're hated, when you're mocked, when you're slandered, when you are persecuted for his name's sake, you count yourself blessed. And then you proclaim Christ. When you face the fires and the waters of trial, you don't throw a pity party and say, woe is me. You stand firm knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance then produces righteousness. And as you are sanctified, made more like Christ, made more righteous, you are fitted for heaven. You fight in your own strength, or you fight in the strength that God supplies. The Lord had used Assyria to bring down the city of Thebes, and now it's Assyria's turn, it's Nineveh's turn to face the wrath of the Lord. What are the fortifications in your life? You talk about, we talk about how the fortifications of the city would be the hope and the security and the glory of the city to these people. What is your hope? What is your security? And what do you find pleasure and glory Are you hidden in Christ? Do you valiantly make war against sin by the grace that Christ supplies through the person of the Holy Spirit whom he gives to us to be our helper? Or do you fight in your own strength and fall prey to sin? Would you be declared to be like a woman fighting in this barbaric battle? No offense, of course, to the women who who are designed by the Lord for wonderful purposes But fighting a barbaric war is not one of them. The Lord says in this battle, Nineveh, your your army is like women. They're going to be overwhelmed. They're going to be overcome. They don't have the physical strength and capability to fight in this battle. Do you fight spiritual battles with spiritual weapons? Or do you fight them with the weapons of your own creation. Dear friend, you must fight the battle with your mind. You must know the truth. But it's got to go beyond your head. It's got to go beyond the mind. It's got to work its way into your heart. And that's not going to happen overnight. That's not going to happen without much prayer. It's not going to happen without accountability from your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not going to happen without the regular gathering to worship and to be with the saints of the Lord. If you want to fight spiritual battles with spiritual weapons, use the weapons the Lord has given you. The word, prayer, the ordinances of the church, the weekly gathering of the church to worship and to pray and to fellowship. trial comes, is Christ your refuge, or or are you going to fight against trial and only your strength in which you will be utterly overwhelmed? Verses 14 and 15, the Lord tells them, make your preparations, draw your water, go into the clay and tread the mortar, take hold of the brick, and there fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. It will consume you as the locust does. A man may plan his way. And a lot of people don't just make plan A. It's plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and on and on and on. And if you plan all of your ways, you can draw water for the siege. You can go into the clay and tread out the mortar. You can build every fortification you want. 
but it's the Lord that's going to establish your ways or it's the Lord who's going to crumble all the plans you've made because you're so consumed with this world. What is your heart? Where do you desire to find your pleasure and your glory and your joy? The cities compared, the readiness ridiculed, and the shepherds sleeping now. Verse 15 down through 18, and we see this, this just failure of leadership. Selfish, sinful, lazy, slothful leaders in Nineveh. Multiply yourself like the creeping locust. Multiply yourself like the swarming locust. You've increased your traders more than the stars of heaven. This is just talking about how far Nineveh goes to, to gather and amass things to themselves. The Lord then says, the creeping locust strips and flies away. Your guardsmen are like the swarming locusts. Your marshals are like hordes of grasshoppers who settle in the stone walls on a cold day. And when the sun rises, they flee. And the place where they are isn't known. Then the Lord says, King of Assyria, your shepherds are sleeping, your nobles are lying down. They're all dead. Sleeping and lying down are euphemisms for the death of these leaders. Your people are scattered to the mountains, and there is no one to regather them. The point to see here, again, dear friend, is the utter failure of leadership. And in the church, we must know that Failure of leadership will put us on a path that is dangerous and that will lead us astray if there is not a course correction. In Nineveh, their leaders failed, and it's because they were consumed with the desires of this world. It says, you're multiplied like the creeping and swarming locusts. Your traders have increased to more than the stars of the heavens. You went city to city and pillaged and oppressed and afflicted and just gathered for yourself earthly treasures. Then what happens? These people are like grasshoppers who, who settle in a cold wall and they settle there during the night, but then when the sun rises, the grasshoppers flee for safety, for, for refuge, for themselves. When the first sign of trouble appears, these leaders escaped as quickly as they could. These are not true leaders. They are consumers. They're exploiters of anyone and anything that they were able to exploit for their own fleshly pleasures and desires. Come down to verse 18. Your shepherds are sleeping your nobles are lying down. They, your people are scattered on the mountains and there's no one left to regather them. And these are euphemisms for death. The, these leading men have died in battle or they have fled for their lives. As that happens, dear friends, the people are scattered. There were strength in numbers, and when the leaders fled or when the leaders died, the people scattered, and there was no longer any strength, and there's no one left to regather them. There's no one left to lead them. There's no one left to rally the people together. The tent is crumbling. The house is coming down, and the true colors of these self-absorbed people are showing because it's every man for himself. Every man is looking out for his own well-being and his own desires. And that all points back, it finds its root according to this text in what? Failed leadership. Failed leadership. So what should we think about that in light of our own lives, our lives individually, and our life as a church, together, collectively? as a body do you see the need here to be ready to stand and fight now of course our, our battle is not the the physical war that faced Nineveh our battle is to stand and contend for the truth rather than fleeing or clamming up at the first sign of resistance 
or opposition or trouble. Now, let's be clear. We're not looking for an argument. The Lord told Timothy through Paul that the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. You don't go looking for a fight. There's a fine line. Hear this, dear friends, because we need to apply this in our day. There is a fine line between being quarrelsome and being one who lovingly, gently, patiently, with much endurance, boldly stands and defends the truth. Do you run at the first sign of trouble, or do you ready yourself to contend for truth and righteousness? These people fled. They ran like cowards because they were cowards. We're to be warriors for Christ. We need to be ready to stand and to contend earnestly for the faith. Think about the fact here that there were no leaders to stand and defend and to pick up the mantle of leadership when these leaders died and dispersed in Nineveh. Do you consider the fact, thinking about that, that we as the Lord's people must be disciple makers? We must be those who take one another by the hand and lead each other onward to godliness and spiritual maturity. Discipleship, dear friend, is not the cure-all for, for failed leadership in the church. But if we are not a church who makes disciples, who raises up generations of leaders from within our walls, dear friends, we're on a path of struggle and difficulty. We need to take one another, take the truth of God's word, invest it, and be accountable to grow and be conformed to the image of Christ. Lastly, we can note the importance of leaders truly leading. Leading truly and leading in the truth and in righteousness. Again, these people were just utterly consumed with themselves. There was no one to regather the people. It was every man for himself. The Lord orders and ordains structures of leadership in the church. But he does not do that so that those who are leaders can amass power and authority to themselves, but it's so the leaders can sacrificially lead and serve the people of God. It's not what happened in Nineveh and the city collapsed upon itself. May that not be true of us. May we raise up leaders, and may those of us who are leaders in the Lord's church, may we lead with sacrifice. May we lead with love and devotion and purity and in the truth and not under compulsion, not because we are greedy, not because we want power and authority, but because we love Christ. As a pastor and elder, you are a under-shepherd to the chief shepherd. How many men take that title upon themselves and then abuse the office? Dear friend, may it never be true of this church that we lead like Christ. The great failure of leadership, and it had a hand. I won't say that it was the only thing that led to, but it had a, a, a strong hand in the fall of Nineveh. Last thing we want to see, looking at verse 19, kind of, Wrapping this up and bringing this whole, this whole prophecy to a close, we want to see the deadly disease. You see the evil and the oppression of these people working itself out to their ultimate downfall. The Lord says, there's no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you, for on whom has not your evil passed continually? Just think about the negative of that for a moment. Your wound is incurable. There is no relief for your breakdown. You will fall. There is no longer a chance for repentance, the Lord says. The Lord said similar to his own people in Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah 30 verse 14, the Lord said, I've wounded you with the wound of an enemy. 
with the punishment of a cruel one because your iniquity is great and your sins are numerous. Your iniquity is great. Your sins are numerous. There is no relief for your breakdown. There is no cure for your sin. But it's not only that, but look at the end of the verse. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you, for on whom has not your evil passed continually? This was a people who was utterly despised by all around them because of their wickedness, because of their evil. They could not be friends with anyone. They could not live in, in fellowship or in harmony with anyone because all they were after was their own selfish pleasures. Now, trust me, we can all understand that not everyone will like you. If you stand for the truth, you will make enemies. It's guaranteed. The world will hate you when you shine light into darkness. But Nineveh couldn't get along with anyone. Everyone was going to celebrate their downfall. That must never be true of us as a church or as individuals. We must strive to live at peace with others. We must strive to live at peace while we don't waver upon the truth or upon convictions that stem and grow out of and find their life in the truth. Dear friend, we must humbly pursue peace and reconciliation with fellow saints. But we never do it at the expense of the truth. Contend for the truth while you sacrificially and lovingly serve the one with whom you are contending. Say that again because we all need to learn that lesson. You contend for the truth while sacrificially and lovingly serving and interacting with the very one who you are contending with. With patience, compassion, you strive to endure and to remain, but you stand upon the truth. You can't waver. We'll study, Lord willing, First John over the, the next months, and one thing that you see there is that that truth just in life in general and the truth of God's word kind of go hand in hand. So, so you can't say, well, I'm contending for the truth of Scripture while you allow all kinds of falsehood and lie, lies and deceit and deception to continue. Truth is truth. Contend earnestly for the truth. But now let's turn to the positive. And the positive is not on the text of this page. It's what we know from Scripture. This is one reason why it's important to, to know Scripture because you would read this and you could just walk away from this beat up, downcast, downtrodden, thinking about the incurable wound of sin. What about the incurable wound of sin in light of the work of Christ? Surely our griefs he bore and our sorrows he carried. And the original, my understanding is that idea of, of our griefs has the idea of illness and infirmities. And, and so it's a real close cross-reference to this idea of the incurable wound of sin. The, the wound of your sin he took upon himself. The disease of sin, the, the wrath that you deserved because you were completely given over to the disease of sin, that was placed upon Christ if you are his through faith. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening that brought us peace fell upon him, and by his scourging, you're healed. Dear friend, take hope in that work of Christ at the cross. Take hope in the fact that he has purged the stain of sin. He has washed it. He has borne its wrath. He's borne the punishment that your sin deserves. Really, as we wrap up Nahum, 
It's really the, 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 if you only take one thing away, take this away. That you were like Nineveh. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were hopeless. Your wound was incurable. You could fight your entire life and you would never be counted righteous. You would never purge the sin from within you. You would never be purified. That's what we see in Nineveh. Their wound was incurable. But you, dear friend, if you're in Christ, you're alive. You're a new creation. Old things have passed away, and all things have been made new. Because of his wounding, because of his death at the cross, you can be healed. It's not physical healing. Because physical healing falls so short of what Christ was doing. He didn't die on the cross so that you could be cured of some physical disease. He died on the cross so your soul could be made new. So that you could live again. So that you could have hope for eternity. Pray that we understand the work of Christ. When you see God's wrath, as again we saw this morning in Romans chapter 1, as you see God's wrath, always come back to the gospel of Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus and walk in newness of life. May we be warned by the great fall of the Assyrian Empire in the city of Nineveh. May we be exhorted by the reminder of God's great grace. By the power of the Spirit, by the grace of the Father, may we walk in newness of life to the glory of the triune God of our salvation. Let's pray.